Audrey is extraordinarily kind, very, very smart, very funny. Um, but overall, it's her kindness and belief that things won't always be this way that have reminded me to just, you know, she gives me, like, I want to I wanna get up and, and do tomorrow because of her. Um, yeah, she's an incredible human being. And that she had the, she really had to fight sometimes. She had to really fight because I'm convinced that these certain things are happening and they're not. She had to push hard to get to me. And I'm really grateful that she did. I'm really grateful that she did. And because she she believed that I was I was worth happiness, I guess. Hello, veggie mates. Welcome back to the Veg Talk Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Davey, and you just heard from this week's special guest, Osha Ginsberg, Australian TV host, podcast maker, author, and all-round great human. I'm extremely grateful to Osha for a number of reasons for making today's episode possible. He's an extremely busy guy and carving out 90 minutes for the show, commuting to and from the location is a big deal. In addition to this, you'll hear this from Osher as well after I stop chatting to you, but this was not a fantastic day for him. And despite this, he still showed up early and committed to having a conversation with me. I really do appreciate this and I'm honored to share some of his story with you today. This was a real reminder to me that for Osher, Mental health truly is a day-to-day struggle, one that he has much more control over now than earlier in his life, but this does not mean he's immune to bad days. I was able to learn a lot from the conversation and hope you feel the same way after listening in. If you need help and would like to speak with someone, in Australia, you can call Lifeline on 131114, and if you're in the States, please call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline on one 800 272 8255. Alternatively, reach out to your local health professional or doctor. Help is always available. If you'd like to find Osher online, you can search for his podcast in the same app you're listening to this one. His show is called the Osher Ginsberg Podcast. Uh, Ginsberg is spelled G-U with umlaut, N-S-B-E-R-G. He has also recently released a memoir called Back After the Break, which is dedicated to sharing his life and the mental health struggles he has experienced along the way. I highly recommend grabbing a copy, whether that be hard copy or in digital formats such as Kindle and Audible. Before we begin, I want to give a big shout out to Rachel Barrett, who was amazingly helpful in scheduling today's conversation. So thank you, Rachel. I don't think this would have been possible without you either. Now for the show. I won't keep you much longer, guys. There is a language warning on this one, so if there are kids in the car, might be a great opportunity to stop and listen later on. As always, I'll see you on the other side and enjoy the show. All right. Well, guys, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> veggie mates, today we are in Sydney. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the first podcast on the road in Sydney, and we are lucky enough to be with... A man that is very well known in Australia. <laughs> he, you might know him from you know places such as Channel V, Australian Idol, um, his own podcast. He has a new book. Um, he's an amazing human talking a lot about his own experience with mental health now. And that's why we wanted him on the show today to, to share his story because he's been helping 
uh, people worldwide uh, by sharing it. So thank you, Osher Ginsberg, for joining us today. I'm grateful to be here. Thank you for, thank you for having me. Um, it's nice to be here. Thank you. I'm uh, yeah stoked to have you on. Yeah, it's great. We're in Alexandria, which is kind of out of inner west of Sydney. Uh, you know, in a strange radio broadcasting uh, <laughs> podcast hub place, which is odd, but it's interesting to be in here. It's got a couple of microphones, yeah, and yeah. Uh, we've got our camera. So it's weird little post production studio, which is great. It's all we need. Uh, okay, great. Cool, cool. The people on the podcast can't hear the sound of my cold sore on my lip healing, but at least the people <laughs> on the camera can. So that's nice. <laughs> no, it's great to have you on. And there's a a question that came um, to me when we were in Bali not long ago, uh-huh. and I thought it was an interesting way to start a conversation. And since you know you've been sharing uh, your story through your book yep. and also regular check-ins through your podcast. Uh, which I really appreciate myself because listening to you on the podcast, it really does feel like you're having a conversation then and there with someone and you're able to check in yourself. The question was, how are you <laughs> and what is your headspace like today? Uh, today, oh man, you got me on an interesting moment. You got me on an interesting day. Uh, I, uh, for anyone's read my book or if you, if, uh, basically I, I came out of, about 2015 talking about the fact that I went through episodes of um, psychosis that manifested as paranoid delusions and um, I, I was quite sick for a long time and uh, I was lucky enough to get a whole lot better but it still sucks and yeah, I'm not on all the meds that I was on um, but um, you know I still I still manage and um, my big trigger like some people you know, if they had a car accident, it might be every time they see a red car, they get they remember the time they were in a horrible crash and they were only a survivor or something like that. Um, for me, my big trigger was climate change. And I've just come from my therapist, uh, who's an acceptance commitment therapist, and we were talking all about being in Melbourne. And uh, I was in Melbourne at the start of the week. I'm doing from, from a volunteer for a, uh, on the board of Sane Australia, which is a uh, mental health charity here in the country. And i um, talking about on my way to work, um, there was a billboard on one side of the road, big pole poster on one side of the road saying, um, what if Melbourne was underwater? Melbourne Knowledge Week, May 17. And on the other side of the road was, only Labor can bring effective climate change policy. On the other side of the road, again, was art plus climate change equals action. And I'm just swimming in all of this, you know, my, my head, because at the time the, the, the delusion was that I was the only one that knew and no one was doing anything about it. And I was trying to very very hard to not run up the street and warn people um because it was you know i was so scared and i thought it was important to warn people but i knew that that was a bad thing to do <laughs> so um so in my head it's like wow this is really good that people are talking about this stuff and it, but my body was reacting as if it was the same th- that day in venice when it all fell started to fall apart and was like that for a long time so i was talking with my uh, therapist about okay let's just imagine that all these thoughts are just billboards and you can kind of turn your head and go, well, this is also going on. My puppy's cute. My wife's wonderful. You know, there's a, a cute kid having a good day, you know, and that stuff's happening. But this is also happening. And I walk downstairs and there's a, one of those, uh, you know, those news screens in the bottom of their building where they just kind of flick through uh, uh, various headlines of the day. And this fucking photo of this half-submerged house. And the headline is, uh, Climate Council warns of plunging property prices as millions of Australian houses will be uninsured in 10 years. <laughs> like, fuck. 
the worst. I'm gonna go now. I'm gonna go to this podcast. Wow. <laughs> that was like yeah, 22 minutes ago. <laughs> yeah. But actually, no, it was longer. It was 45 minutes ago. And um, but I I managed to sit down at Shift Eatery in Surrey Hills and have a smoothie and a bowl. So. It was weird because my stomach didn't want to accept food because it was trying to hard, kind of hard to eat when your your stomach's having you know horrible anxiety knots. But I was like, "Come yeah. on, fuck you, just eat." And, <laughs> and I got on the motorcycle and I rode here. So yeah, I'm like, I'm the, the kind of therapy I'm doing is called acceptance commitment therapy, and it's basically I I can I can be with it, you know, mm-hmm. I can be with this thing and do my life as well. So yeah. That's a thing. That's a headline today, and that's a big sign. And there was like two stories later, there was another climate story, and I was just fucking heavy to my because my body reacts in horror, and I want to shit my pants, and it's, it's it sucks. But I'm like, okay, well, well, and you know, my wife's painting the walls in our apartment. We've got the baby room on the way. Mm-hmm. You know, things are going okay. So I, I can carry both of these things. It's it's a heavy load, um, but I can do it. It's not comfortable. I don't have to like it, but I can do it. And kind of, you know, I know the more I do it, the stronger I'll get at it, but it doesn't mean it doesn't suck. Exactly. <laughs> and I think that's that's something I've been just amazed at watching your story. Like growing up in Australia, seeing what you've done, but now understanding what you were going through when you were being beamed into everyone's mm. televi- uh, television, everyone's living room, what you were actually going through. It, I don't know. We'll get into that. But being able to actually get up on the TV and, and do that and, and now knowing what you've gone through is quite yeah. amazing. And it, it kind of gets back to that carrying carrying the, the load there. Yeah, yeah. Car- well, I'm, no, I'm doing it right now. Like yeah. the feeling of my body is horrible yeah. at this point as I'm speaking to you. But, you know, what choice? Do I have? And I was like, okay, well, how, how can I be with it? And then how can I move in accordance with my values? And to move in accordance with my values is to have this conversation and then to go and do the other work I'm going to do later on. Ethic. That's, all I, that's yeah. all I can do. Cool. I think there's, yeah, um, more to unpack there and, and lots to learn from, um, yeah, the way you're you're dealing, living with, with mental illness. We're going to go back. We're okay. going to go back a little bit. So just to learn a little bit about, you know, Osha, as a kid, mm-hmm. I understand that it started young for you. Yeah, so, yeah, I was, yeah. I, I was about five when I started uh, first experiencing uh, ruminating anxiety that uh, just wouldn't stop. Um, and it was really, I remember crawling under my bed to try and get away from it. Um, but it didn't matter how far under the bed I crawled because uh, the feeling was in my body and I couldn't escape it. Um, I was about five and, um, I got sent off to a psychiatrist, but it was fuck 1979. People didn't really, well, what do we do? <laughs> Is it okay? We just sat there and played chess, <laughs> battleship or whatever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it started, it started early and I was pretty, I was a pretty odd kid and, um, which then I became an odd adult. And uh, I was very, uh, I, co- I compensated a lot by trying to be big and gregarious as a way to try to be in some sort of control of the situation. I couldn't just be with the uncertainty of just 
being. I had to kind of be the biggest person in the room or the loudest person in the room. And fucking amazingly, that became my career. Um, I do my job for a very different reason now. But uh, I was very fortunate to have been caught by the um, the uh, health system when I was about, I was about 19. Because um, I, uh, I was having some pretty serious... Um, what's the word i was pretty paranoid pretty hung up about um and uh, like irrationally paranoid and uh about a bunch of health things and um i you know i came back for like a a third blood test for something i was convinced that i had within six months and this doctor went yeah you're not really at risk at all you're okay and maybe you should go see this let's go have a chat with this this guy and luckily, I was caught by the public health system, and because uh, I was pretty odd by that point, I wasn't really looking people in the eye very much, and uh, I was uh, being pretty weird. Um, but yeah, so yeah, I was about I was about nineteen when I first came into contact with the mental health system in Queensland, and um, I was very lucky actually because um, I started to isolate a lot and not leave the house much, and yeah, so I was pretty lucky. So, for you going through school. Um, you know, finding it difficult to be in, you know, new situations with new people, new teachers, whatever it might have been. Um, how did you combat that as a, as a young kid? And, oh. and not having the support from like the, the system, so to speak, like psych, um, psychiatry or psychologists? Um, I, uh, oh, well, I found that a good way to get rid of the uncomfortable feeling in my stomach was to put things in it. So... I started to compulsively eat and um, I ended up in Weight Watchers when I was eight and I ended up getting quite fat, um, just compulsively eating to try and make the icky feelings go away, which is not uncommon. And um, by the time I was about 17, I was 112 kilos um, and I've kind of been up and down since then. I'm on a pretty good run at the moment, but um, yeah, at various times in my life, you know, I still I still have to be quite aware of compulsive eating. I still have to be, you know, on top of that because it's a thing. Um, it's one of the compulsive behaviours that I've got to watch out for as an avoidance of being in the ickiness that's inside me. Um, yeah, so that and just kind of being being loud and just generally obnoxious. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's just. But all, all I was trying to do was just trying to control the situation. Just you know, at least control the perception of people that people may may have of me. Um, that's what I was trying to do. When did the love of music, media, when did that oh, start coming into play for you? Right, music was all I knew. I was a kid. I remember Mum finding me conducting the orchestral sounds on the test pattern. On telly, back in the day, there wasn't 24-hour television. We had a test pattern for most of the day, uh, which was just a broadcast signal. So, yeah, we're still here. And they just played classical music in the background. And mum found me conducting in front of the TV. I must have been four, five, something like that. Um, Dad was always very, very musical. Um, we were always exposed to really interesting music at home. And um, I sang a lot. I sang in all the choirs and stuff. And then when I was eight, I started playing guitar. And then... Um, just played it was in all the musicals i could get in and i played in high school bands which were just you know crappy cover bands but you know that's all we knew at the time and um 
Yeah, it's just all I did. That's all I did. But I started playing bass when I was about 14 and started double bass when I was 16 and I sang as well. I just loved it. I just absolutely loved it. There was nothing like it. Um, I was a bit... Years later when we did Idol, um, I kind of understood why we weren't able to get very far um, because I was... Well, why I wasn't able to get very far, I should say. I shouldn't speak for the other guys in my bands. Um, I saw that there's a there's a difference between being fuck he's good to holy shit get the phone like perceptually percep is that a word the perception the perception that I had being in it was you know this is all I'd done I dedicated you know thousands and thousands and thousands of hours to being like this Um, I was quite a good bass player I'd like to think but I just couldn't write songs and I was a pretty good singer, but I wasn't amazing. And the difference between pretty fucking good and amazing, you may as well be, you know, you're in a different hotel, mate. <laughs> it's like, and I remember being quite frustrated by that. But then years later when we were on Idol, it was like, oh, right. I was one of those guys. Like, it was all I'd ever done. It was how I identified myself, um, how people viewed me. But the difference between what I was and what is actually needed to be that at a professional level, it's just there's a bit of a chasm between where I was and where that was. Uh, so I was lucky that radio came along and I was able to channel my musicality in, and my love of music into that. Um, unfortunately, it was through Brian Adams and Celine Dion because <laughs> it was the mid-90s and I was on a middle-of-the-road uh, hot AC station uh, which is quite hot AC is a radio format. Um, there's hit radio and there's AC radio and there's hot radio and we were so hit radio. So if you're in Australia, your hit radio will be uh, it's not really in Sydney anymore, but your hit radio traditionally would have been your like your two day FM or your or your but now your hit radio is your Kiss FM because it's all the top charts. And AC would be your um, your gold kind of WS or gold radio in Melbourne or river i think it is in brisbane uh and hot ac is a mix of the two so we were a hot ac station so we'd occasionally play chart tracks just a lot of fleetwood mac and brian adams and celine dion so a mix of old kind of hits and and current hits would that be the best way to describe it the best way to describe it would be better music variety from the 70s 80s and 90s that was the bumper sticker so how did you get into that with with, you see you see that the music career isn't well, it's not going to take off for you. Was there was there a moment in time where you yeah. thought, okay, this isn't going to take off. I need to head somewhere else. Well, it was to be in an original band in Brisbane in the time and you know, unemployed, you know, because the time it took to dedicate to playing and rehearsing and touring and all that shit, you couldn't have a full time job. Um, it was a, a very famous Brisbane band who actually put a use case to the Department of Social Security at the time, which went on to be Centrelink. That the very work that they were doing of being in a band rehearsing touring trying to put releases out was actually looking for a job and they managed to get a uh a payment uh, a dole payment out of that wow and who was that band osha well, i won't say on the microphone <laughs> if you go through some uh interviews you may hear one of them admit to it okay uh, <laughs> but it was banned from the mid 90s anyway um 
uh, I was like, oh shit, I, there's something more. I was delivering groceries for pensioners in the afternoons for the coals at Kenmore there in the band van. So I was like, God, there's something more. I, I might not have done very well in high school, but I know I'm not stupid. Um, there's got to be something more than this. So I just started writing letters. I wrote letters to every station in the city. I wrote just saying, hey, look, I'll do anything you want. I just want to, you know, be around it. Um, this is all I've ever done. It's all I want, want to do. I just really want to learn. And I've been a roadie for a bunch of years, which is one of the reasons I wear hearing aids now. I've been a roadie from the age of 17 to about 20, 19. And um, during that time as a roadie, I'd met, um, just for covers bands, just to make a bit of cash. And um, during that time as a roadie, I, um, I met a bar manager at one of these nightclubs in Brisbane. And he had then since gone on to work at promotions at a station in Brisbane called B105. And he saw this letter that I wrote and I put a photo in all the letters and he went, oh, I know that bloke, get him in. And then I went and I started driving around the station trucks for giving away the ice girl cans of soft drink on the street corner for eight bucks an hour. And um, I was 20, that was before tax. <laughs> and um, so I, uh, um, you know, I was on air and I was just, you know, say, hey, we're on the corner of Old Cleveland Road and whatever, Cooperoo, we've got the Video Easy Movie of the Week or whatever, come on down and show me a sticker and I'll give you some shit. <laughs> and one of the program directors heard me doing that kind of stuff and then I started hanging out in the studio with the late night announcer, Claire Blake. After only about two or three weeks there, I started hanging out with Claire in the evenings. What does what that button do? What's this do? And she, amazingly, she taught me how to run the studio um she taught me how to run the tape machine she taught me how to play the cd she taught me how to you know make sure you were on time at your hour which is very important in radio it was all manual back then it's all computerized now but she taught me how to do all of it and then after about two weeks of that she started sitting on the other side of the desk just talking and i did all the button pushing because that's a big part of it radio is you've got to be able it's called paneling she taught me how to do that and so it was about six weeks after I started in a combination with me knowing how to do all that and the program, program director hearing me on radio doing the crosses during the day and the night, um, she said to him, my boss, she said, oh, look, I've got to take next Friday night off. He's ready. He should go in and do a shift. And he went, all right, in you go. Six weeks after I started, I'm on air doing a night shift, doing a late night shift. And then not long after that, I started doing the overnights. I'm like, this is it. And for some, it was this first thing that I'd kind of done that people were like, I don't know, you've, you've got it. You're raw and you've got a lot of work to do, but you've got it. Just keep working. You've got it. It's going to be a long time before you get there, but you've got it. So just keep going. And that was it. Once I had the chance, I just did it as often as I could. I just hustled, 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 hustled for shifts. And then eventually that made me the full-time overnight guy. And that means you do five nights overnight and one breakfast, which sucks because you finish at 6 a.m. on a f Saturday morning. You turn back around and do breakfast on Sunday morning at 6 a.m. No, finish it. Yeah, yeah, 6 a.m. on a Sunday morning. And then you on air at midnight, Sunday night. I've always wondered <laughs> about that. I've always wondered <laughs> about, like, you know, the weird hours of radio. But that is the definition of getting your foot in the door, if I've ever heard yeah, of it. Yeah. You That's gotta, amazing. Yeah. yeah. And then... You know, so people are like, oh, baby's coming. Fucking sleep deprivation. I'm like, fuck you. I'm like, <laughs> I worked as, between the roadie job and the overnight job. I worked in just zombie hours for about seven years of my life. So I'm all right with it. 
I'm yeah. Like, I know I know what it is to sleep in three hour shifts for a year at a time. I've done it. It's not um, great, but I can do it. Um Yeah, and and you know, people ask and I did that. I did that for five years before I was ever on Channel V. So you know, this Uber guy the other day was like, yeah, I really want to get into that. I'm like, man, there's no... Would you get into a light plane, a tiny little two-seater with a pilot that had done it five times? You know, fuck no. You would want that pilot to have flown 10,000 hours before you jumped in a plane with that person. Similarly, would you give a TV or a radio job to someone who's got five YouTube videos? Nope. Would you give a radio job to someone who's done five podcasts, or 10 podcasts? Nope. Come to me when you've got like a thousand hours of content <laughs> and, and, and show me how you've constantly been. Because the thing in radio and commercial radio, every week you go in for what's called an air check where your program director basically goes, okay, Matt, you fucking talk too much here. You talk too much there. That should have been 30 seconds. It was a minute. You know, I have no idea what next song is because you didn't say it. Okay, do it way better. Oh, and you go away and you try and do it better. Okay, Matt. You talk for 30 seconds. I need it to be 10. You need to say what you said in 30 seconds within 10 seconds. All right. You, you're back announced here, but I've got no idea what's coming up in 10 minutes. Why would I keep listening? Give me a reason. Okay. I don't hear anything about the promotion on the weekend. You've got to work that in there and you've got to be funny and you've got to be you and you've got to sound like you're making it up on the spot. Come back to me in a week. Oh, okay. And like you're constantly doing that, constantly doing that, being dragged over the coals, emerging from these meetings, bloody and battered with your ego and tatters. And but it's that's the only way to get better. That's the only way to get better. Yeah, I imagine that's got to be tough for a young kid um, to constantly be getting that feedback. Where you're probably making a lot of mistakes, but oh, yeah. you've got to be big enough to just recollect and, and, I and go not. at it again. I wasn't for years. I was an arrogant piece of shit. So <laughs> you know, I didn't want to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> so it made it even worse. <laughs> so how then did you keep it? How did you keep the job? Did you... I don't know, man. I used to wonder. It's like I, I had no idea why they didn't fire me that many times. I crashed black thunders at all kinds of shit. I was rude to people in meetings. I, I have no idea. That's a miracle. It's a miracle that I still I stayed employed. Yeah, you speak about having a big ego with mm. Todd Sampson in in the podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which was a, a great two part interview on your own pod uh, podcast show. Yeah. Um, well, how do you get into Channel V then from from there? And same, same, same way. You know, the, no one's going to come to your house and knock on your door and say, oh, "Matt, hey, buddy, here's your you know lifestyle channel twenty four part documentary series about plant based eating and um, we want you to shoot it in Ubud and we're going to make you live there for nine months. Um, oh, and here's the two, here's the, the the three book deal as well. Here you go. Back to your breakfast. Nope. No one's going to walk up your driveway and knock on the door and give you that news. You've got to go and do it. All right. And so similarly, um, the, the, one of the most important things I learned was that how you leave people feeling is basically your calling card and your your business card and your billboard. Um, and that's the thing that will speak for you when you're not in the room. And so this particular radio mentor of mine who taught me how to do voiceovers, who taught me how to do commercials on radio. He had moved to Sydney to work in Foxtel, um, and which is at the time a you know, startup television network. Um, it's quite well established now, but you know, <laughs> 20 years ago, 21 years ago when he started. And um, 
he he's the one when I said I got I got a job in Adelaide. I said, mate, should I go to Adelaide? It's a long way away. I'm leaving my girlfriend behind and my friends and my family. He goes, mate, you'll be in Sydney in six months. If you go to Brisbane to Adelaide, do this radio job, you'll be in Sydney within six months. And he was right. You know, I landed in Adelaide. I was there for about six weeks, eight weeks, when uh, he gave me a call and said, um, this bloke called Nathan Harvey has just left Channel V. Send him a tape. So I sent him a tape. I made this undeniable tape of me riding my longboard my power peralta sidewalk surfer uh, oh no it wasn't peralta it was just power sidewalk surfer it's massive big longboard skateboard through the streets of adelaide long hair down on my ass talking about why you know i should be the next uh vj on channel v and i filmed it on a, a video eight it wasn't even high eight four by three edited it on the tape to tape on the vhs machine in the boardroom at safm I sent it in and then two weeks later, I got a phone call saying, hey, we want you to come and come and have a chat. So I flew into Adelaide, into Sydney clandestinely, had a late night meeting at Channel V, then stayed, slept about three hours on a couch and then turned around and flew back to Adelaide. And hey, everybody, like I'd never left the city. I did that two more times and then um, they offered me a job and I went and resigned from Channel V. I went and resigned from SAFM and I started in Channel V. Uh, April 12, 1999 was my first day on air. So nearly 20 years and one month ago. So yeah, it wow. was, uh, yeah. So that, that's, that's how I was just the right person with the right skills at the right time with the right people that knew what I could do. And talking of, of people, that radio gig that you've, you know, you've done for the last five or six years enabled you to meet you know, people throughout that industry. Yeah. You've just made a whole bunch of contacts, networked yeah. really well, yeah. worked hard. I didn't network really well at all. I just no. knew, I just knew people. That, yeah. that the realizing the value of the people that you'd met didn't come to me until I was unemployed at thirty-eight. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was thirty-eight and unemployed. I got fuck. I really should have taken care of all those relationships. Yeah, <laughs> I'm very different about how I do it now. Something that kind of fascinated me was. Going into that Channel V job, Mm -hmm. also still going through a bunch of mental health issues. And I think you said in 1999, you saw uh, a psychologist or a psychiatrist psychiatrist, and and rejected medication. Yeah. Do you want to talk a little bit about that encounter yeah and then then how it kind of evolved from there and maybe how you would have done it differently? Well, I was really, um, I was having a very stressful time. My first year in television was very stressful. New job, new city, new challenges, new people, new ways of working. Mid-dawn's very solitary. Um, you don't really work with many people. Then I'm in this massive open plan office dealing with f- strong personalities. And um, I was drinking a lot to try and manage what was going on. And then I went to go see the psychiatrist at the top end of town described to him what was going on. I was pretty jumpy. And he goes, yeah, you should probably go on antidepressants. I said, well, how do they work? He goes, well, I said, well, I'll be on them for a long time. He goes, well, you just on them for a while. And then while you're on them, your brain tends to kind of change a bit. And then eventually you come off them and things are better. And I'm like, I just didn't want, didn't want to take meds. Just didn't want to take meds because I was 25. And then at that point, you know, beer was a pretty... Uh, you know, effective management strategy uh, <laughs> at the time. 
Um, I just didn't want to be the guy taking meds. And um, to 2007, if we fast forward to there, when I finally got to such a horrible place that I did take meds, once they kicked in a couple of weeks later, because they don't kick in straight away, once they kicked in a couple of weeks later, I was like, oh, fuck, man, I've just wasted a year, 10 years of my life. Mm-hmm. You know, just gritting my teeth with this when I could have just been okay. But I was so stubborn. Um, I sing a song about it in my... Uh, I, I did a live show based on the book and we. I wrote a song about it. <laughs> and he goes, Don't make a decision by taking medication when you've got a brain that needs medication to make a good decision about taking medication. That's not a good decision. Because I wanted it to be like an ad jingle. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah. So, I was, yeah, I was making... And I did that again years later when I got really sick and I, yeah. um, I was offered... Um, Antipsychotics. I'm like, oh, I didn't want to take them. It's fucking stupid. I needed them, but I didn't want to take them. But I was making that choice with a brain that needed them to mm-hmm. make a clear choice. It's very silly. It's a very tricky move to make. At the time, though, tricky move, tricky decision. You know, you're a young guy. On the outside, it looks like everything's going, you know, so well. Like if if I was a young kid watching Channel V and, hmm. you know, Andy G is on the other, on the other side of the television, yeah. um, presenting, presenting himself for the for the job he's he's in. I would have been like, oh man, that guy's got a an amazing life. So to make a decision where you're like, oh, I've got to consider taking medication, where the stigma was probably yeah. pretty bad. At self that stigma, point. self stigma is a big a big thing, a really big thing that a lot of people don't talk about. Um, but yeah, like there was always a, you know, being on camera was, the things were usually okay. I was usually all right when I was working because it gave me something to do. It's like, like I came here on a motorcycle. When when you're on the motorcycle, you've you got no fucking time to worry about shit. You've got to worry about this car, that car, that person crossing a street. Why is he reversing? What's his ute doing? What's that car doing? Is the lights going to change? I don't know. Is it going to rain? I don't know. You know, where's my blind spot? You, you don't have got time to think about that stuff. So on TV, when I was on, when the camera was on, when people were seeing me, it was like, oh, you, you know. I was pretty focused. As soon as the camera's off and you go and play your bloody Limp Biscuit song or whatever, then I was just <laughs> back on. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. How did you or when did you start to be able to deal with the silence and being with yourself? Was there a... I still haven't. Still, still working yeah. on it, man. That's a lifelong thing. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lifelong thing. People sit on mountaintops 50 years before they get anywhere close to that. You know, I'm just, just, uh, just trying to be with. I spent a lot of my my life in avoidant behaviour, be that you know drinking or working or eating or uh, shopping or gambling or being on my fucking phone, whatever it is. So just trying to learn to just be with it, like mm-hmm. I was saying earlier to you. Um, just trying to be with the. Okay, this is uncomfortable. Is it getting uncomfortable forever? Probably not. Can I be with how uncomfortable it is right now? Yeah, I can. All right, then. <laughs> Let's just learn to be with it. Okay. And then it just kind of gets easier. It still sucks, but it does get easier. Yeah. Because the more you avoid it, the worse it gets. That's the shittiest part about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. The more you try to push it away, I guess, you know, the analogy would be you you can't stand you can't stand balloons right 
But every time you say, I want the balloon to go away, you don't realize it, but you've got a hand pump connected to a balloon. Every time you say, fuck off balloon, go away balloon, you're pumping the balloon bigger and bigger and bigger every time you pump it up. So that's basically how I'd explain it. So you just have to be with it. <laughs> Shit, but you got to be with it. Yeah, it's it's definitely... I've, I've found your story super interesting from, from the aspect of being so comfortable in the performance kind of stage of it. That's your almost your mental downtime, um, mm. being on camera, doing the, the performance, so to speak. Because... Um, a lot of people find that very act of public speaking or yeah. being on camera, that for them is the, the anxious moment. Ah, um, so when, when am I more in control? Yeah. It's like it's a lack of control over, um, over variables that makes me feel awful. Yeah. When am I more in control than when I'm hosting a big shiny floor TV show and there's you know, 100 people on the crew and 300, 400 people in the audience and away we go. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> and... After, I suppose, when V was coming to an end, or for you, there was a huge turning point with with Australian Idol. Mm. So how did Australian Idol come about and how did it change your life? <laughs> well, the thing about when, you, when a TV network buys a big TV show like, I don't know, like the show that I'm on, The Bachelor or Got Talent or bake great something bake off or whatever you know whatever that's a franchise and it's no more a franchise than the mcdonald's up the street uh here on mcavoy street say if we all got together and bought a maccas we wouldn't but let's say we did maccas hq go and we go why would we buy that we buy that because it's been proven to work in various markets and with these proven formulas of business plan and this proven recipe and this proven strategy around opening hours and closing hours and how you serve people and the branding and what people wear and what people say when they serve you and you know variants in the menu throughout the year to keep customers coming back okay let's go let's put our money in let's get one and then when you get one they hand you this manual that goes here's everything you need to know here's the logo files here's the you know here's the the food distribution pattern that we'd like to use here's exactly how it works as far as how many people you need on shift versus how many people are coming in the door so you know that's the operations manual when you buy a tv franchise it's pretty much the same thing you get a big ring binder called the bible that's what it's called and it's got the fonts it's got the supers it's got the music it's got you know uh you know here's what worked in other markets it's a if it's a 12 episode show episodes one to four look like this episodes four to eight look like that episodes eight to twelve look like that here's the arc for all the characters look for look for this one um i remember hearing that the tv show undercover boss had an extraordinary bible that really went out for going like if your boss is this kind of personality when you're casting the just the, the general people that work on the shop floor you've got to have you know the strong one the the know-it-all, the funny one, the the strong lady, whoever is the crier, you've got to have these are the characters and then over the arc of the thing, it plays out in this particular way, usually. It's fascinating the way Mm. they've figured it out. But they've got proven rating success and if that is replicated then in another country like the Netherlands or in Germany or whatever, it's like, well, it clearly works because it's not even in English and it's doing the same thing because people are people all over the world. So when it came to buying Idol, Idol was a two-hander. And they needed two people that could host Big Life TV. 
I'd been working on a bunch of big live shows that we'd been doing for years by that point where we basically took a bus, a satellite dish, um, a staging truck and a skate ramp all around the country and we were doing live, two hours live, cameras plugged directly in the back of a satellite dish and we are just live in the middle of the desert, in the middle of the field, Dubbo, Rocky, Townsville, Broken Hill, wherever, Mount Gambia, like the <laughs> wildest places and yeah. hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of kids would come out to see it. And so we got really good at hosting these big live shows and getting a crowd up and, and you know, pushing a show forward. And so when it came time to find two people that were good at big live TV and they were felt comfortable with trusting with, you know, hours of it, well, we were the only ones that had been doing hundreds and hundreds of hours of it. There was no one else that had been doing any live TV like anywhere close to what we've been doing. So like, let's get those guys in. Then we went. So um, it was a no-brainer for them to go. Was James with you at V? Yeah, yeah, yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you know, success has many masters. I've, I must have met 42 people that told me they were the ones that told the network to go for me and James. Whoever it was, thank you. Um, but it was pretty weird. Um, we did the audition. We knew it was going to be a huge show because we were across what was happening in America and the UK. And with because they had done, we went on air with our first when America had just done their third, mm -hmm. so we were really aware of, of what was happening over there and how big it was, and we knew it was going to be massive. And but when we went live, um, I remember coming back to my dressing room, and I think there's an oh, some kind of ancient Nokia, but there was no room left on the SIM card for the text messages. That many people that I knew had watched that were texting. I'm like, wow, that's extraordinary. And then you know. People are already kind of stare at me a little weird when I went to the grocery store because I was on Channel V. But this was like people running up to me in the street, grabbing me by the shoulders and screaming in my face and speeding up to me next to me on the street, trying to take a photo of me on their phone with their ancient 3G camera phone. It was pretty weird. <laughs> it was so pretty weird. What's the difference in terms of viewership from Channel V to Australian Idol? What is the oh, difference? Fuck. It's two zeros. <laughs> v had 200,000 we had 2 million yeah, oh, what's that a zero sorry <laughs> that's a zero that's a zero but yeah, it's yeah. still a it's such a big change because yeah. you know I'm I'm probably in high school at the point Idols on TV it was massive everyone's watching it everyone it's before the time of everyone having an iPhone it's before the yeah. time of everyone having Instagram Facebook so on and so forth so it really yeah. was the draw card for yeah. families yeah there was absolutely there was DSL if you're lucky to have that kind of internet every other internet was the internet used to make a noise when you used it um, and uh, it was dial up at best um, yeah and it was uh, there was very very little distraction people like I said people only really had GSM phones um, Foxtel did have some market penetration, but it wasn't that much. No. Um, I think there were 500,000 homes, if that. And um, yeah, so, and then when, and we were, you know, that time slot doesn't exist anymore really in Australia, but it was the appointment viewing family, 7.30 Sunday, kids have had dinner, everyone's in their jammies, let's watch the show, you go straight to bed after. That was it. It was on. It's huge. How was that time for you? Um, you know, you've, just, you've, you've, ex, you've explained briefly what it was yeah. like on the on the other side of the the production studio with yeah. so many people just you know chasing after you for for photos and to say hello yeah, in, in the, in yeah, the yeah. street. But yeah. how did you how did you cope? 
Um, How were you doing? Uh, look, we were also we were doing Channel V at the same time. I, was, well, I had Channel V at the same time for the first three years of that show. And um, two years, three years, three, three, four, five. Yeah, and um, yeah. So I was, you know, I was working a lot, and um, yeah, I just, just kind of drank to, to because you come off, come off air, and you're just firing. You know, you've just been doing two straight hours of live TV, and you know, there's these massive key changes, and everyone's excited. There's 800 people in the room. It's huge. Squillions of people are watching. You come off here and you're like, right, you just want to tear the walls down because you're just full of energy. It takes a long time to come down from that. Um, but that's where your friend beer can come in handy. <laughs> that's what I thought at least. I found better ways to come down since. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was that was it. And, but I was, you know, I was 28 and I'm the highest rating show in the country's history at the point in time. And we were live. And so it's not like a MasterChef or something where they shoot it six months out. We were live. We'd get off air and whatever had happened on the, in the studio, like people knew what happened tonight. Like, what was it like? It's like, oh, yeah, it was great. Climb every mountain. It's good. <laughs> um, yeah, it was uh, it was pretty, pretty exciting. Cause, you know, a lot of you know, people want to be associated with it. People want to be a part of it. So you, you kind of get swept up in a lot of very exciting moments and you, it's all very it's all happening all around you and you kind of go with a lot of things that you otherwise maybe wouldn't have gone with and then suddenly it's like three in the morning and like what am I doing here <laughs> I should be home this isn't good <laughs> so you're at I mean you're probably getting invited to every event in, a, in Australia at that yeah, point I don't know you're probably would you arguably arguably have been one of one of if not the most sought after people in Australia at the time? Oh, no, not really. No? No, not really. There were, you know, there were like football people much, much bigger than us. No, no, no. We were just these two unshaven guys on but there's Sunday a lot of, night. There's a lot of attention on you mm. and you're, you know, you would have been, you would have been having fun as a 28-year-old. Yeah, it was yeah, wild. Yeah. yeah. Parties. It was on. Every night. Um, not every know. night, but it was on. Yeah. yeah. So... From from that aspect, were you were you enjoying it at the time? I don't really know. No, probably not. I was always, you know, always waiting for things to get better. Always waiting for now oh, the party's really going to start in just like a few more minutes. There's going to be an even better song or something more amazing is about to happen. Don't go home yet. And nothing ever did, and it never did. All that happened was I just spent more money on booze and had a worse hangover the next day. <laughs> that was all that happened. Yeah. Did you did you need alcohol to actually do the shows? Never. No. No, no. I never drank before the show. No, no. I didn't like it. Didn't like it. What was the decision to to only drink outside? Was it purely? No, I just wanted to be as sharp as I could be for the yep. live stuff. You know, alcohol's a depressant, and I didn't want to be at all impaired. Um, you know, I wouldn't get behind the wheel driving. I didn't, if I'd been drinking, I didn't want to be, you know, on this live television. Is like, I don't know, it's like juggling babies over a above ground pool full of sharks. You know, you really want to be concentrating. So you've so. got the, you've got the, you've got the worm, like, 
you hear some, you know, stories of addiction and it does seem to be uh, quite an uncontrolling thing for people where they just have to keep going back for more and more regardless of the environment or the situation that they're in. You've got the wherewithal to say, look, here are the lines, basically. Once I go on live TV, you know, I'm not going to decide to to drink alcohol. I just wanted to be. I just wanted to be the the best I could possibly be on camera. I just always always like that about about work. I always wanted to be the how. I just wanted to be absolutely as as good as I could be. And um, I just knew that if I was drinking, I wasn't as good as I could be. Right. That was it. How did you keep the motivation? Because you talk about going out to the raft boat rather than letting mm-hmm. you know the raft boat come to you over and over again throughout your career. Yeah. How did you keep the motivation to keep going to the raft boat? Oh, I didn't. No? no? No way. Like once Idol started, then people were charging down my driveway, beating on the door with all kinds of stuff. So I stopped going out. I stopped looking for it. I stopped hunting it because so much of it was coming to to me. Um, yeah, I paid the price for that later on when I, you know, kind of wondered why is that why nobody knocking on the door anymore <laughs> so how long did idol last and uh, when we did, did seven, that we did seven seasons we did seven seasons of idol um we did seven seasons of idol that ended in 2009 yeah and um then i moved to america i, I started living in america from 2005 i kind of only whenever idol wasn't on so i'd live in america for maybe nine ten months a year nine months of the year and then um, I just come back here when I was here. And then, uh, um, yeah, by 2009, Idol had ended. The radio show that I was on had ended. We started a new radio show from LA for Australia. And then I was in America full time from 2000, end of 2009, doing that radio show over there. And then it wasn't very long before um, all the drinking kind of came to a head. So coming off... You know the the biggest Australian TV show, yeah, going around and making the move to Los Angeles to do to do the radio. Yeah. What was that like for you? You know, leaving Australia, new country, uh, a new job again. Oh, look, it was super exciting because I've been in America for a couple of years by this point, and it was mm-hmm. very exciting to, um, you know, be there. And I've taken a lot of meetings and met a lot of people and. and Obviously, I had Idol behind me, so there was a lot of heat going on about, <clears throat> you know, what possibilities there were for me there to host gigs and, and host shows. That, but when Idol ended and then this radio show that I was on at the time, Take 40 Australia, um, ended for me, it was a massive blow to the ego and I did not like it at all. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, I arrived with this, you know, head of... Um, head of steam and then the air was promptly let out of it all thankfully there was another radio show that we were able to put together that was from america for australia it was very hard to get going but we got there in the end it was a countdown show we did three years of it in the end um but yeah i i came to america uh with a you know massive super high rating number one tv and radio show and i uh, basically, I left Australia with that, and I arrived in America with. Oh, there's this show we're trying to get off the ground on the Sunday, Arvo. It was tough. It was really tough to start that, and um, 
So what was the what was the idea behind the new radio show? Well, basically, kind of, we were the first time anyone had ever broadcast from America for Australia permanently. There'd been shows before, but they were like for the week of the Oscars or whatever. They'd fly a breakfast show over to do lots of interviews. We were the first time that on a weekly basis there'd be a live show from America live. So we ended up we were on air at stupid hours of the day, um, finishing at three in the morning sometimes, so we could be there in the afternoon, in the evening in Australia on a Sunday. And, um, yeah, it was, uh, you know, basically we're in the, the entertainment capital of the world um, and just uh, extraordinary access to actors and artists. So that was basically the idea. To, that's what we're doing now. I think they've put it together again. I think it's going on air again. I don't know. I've stopped listening to radio. It's a cool, it's a cool concept. <laughs> I mean, yeah. living in Los Angeles, beaming something back to Australia. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a pretty yeah. cool idea. We've How been trying we've been trying to get it up for a couple of years. We've been trying to get it up for a bunch of years. When I first moved to America, I'm like, this is what I should do. When it was there, when I was here in two thousand five, I'm like, I've got to figure out a way to stay here. I've got to figure out a way to do a radio show from here or a TV show from here. So you know. A few people did it in the end. Rovi Rove got a TV show up from there for here. Yep. Um, for a little while. Um, it's hard to do. It's hard to do because you're not really on the radar and it's even harder now when why would they want to give an interview to you when they can say something on their Instagram story and be in the pocket of the 400,000 people or 300,000 people in Australia that follow them. Mm-hmm. Why do they need an interview? So it's harder to do now. It's very sure. hard to do now. For sure. You've got to meet people where they are in the pockets right yeah. now. Yeah. And what does, what does a radio show have that, you know, in the, in the day, back in the day, that radio and television was the gatekeeper between the artist and the fan. That doesn't exist anymore. Yep. So, exactly. It's yeah. very true. That's how I yeah, got in yeah. contact yeah, yeah. with yourself. There, yeah, yeah. there is no gatekeeper now. How did you like LA? Leaving your family and all of that behind. How oh. was the lifestyle for you in Los Angeles? Mate, it's an extraordinary place. I mean, it makes sense if you, you know, if you love, if if your life is finance, you want to live in London, Singapore, and New York. That's it. If your life is speed skating. You want to live in Norway or you know Japan? Like if you, if all you want to do is, I don't know, if you want to be in the WWE, you're going to move to the Miami. That's because that's where it is, you know. And if you want to be in television and play television at the, the highest level uh, in the Western world, at least Los Angeles. That's it. That's it. So it's an industry town. Uh, it had gone through an enormously difficult time with the writer's strike and then the GFC smashing the shit out of America. Australia did not notice that there was a massive recession on the rest of the planet. Really fucked things up over there. So that, that was, timing was tough because I was arriving right when there was, you know, all that going on. Um, but it's an extraordinary place to live. I mean, it's, everyone's there for a reason. Not many people are from there, are born there. It's a little like Darwin. Um, everyone kind <laughs> of, everyone, no one got born there. You know, everyone, yep. oh, you know, to do something else somewhere else. And uh, call me John. It's not their real name, but yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, that's that's kind of what it's like. But it's great because everyone's there for a reason. No one, no one really messes around. But um, I was lucky to um, have landed um, into a kind of already made social circle, uh, which was good uh, for me. But it was the same time as you know the a rising of sort of some sort of larger issues within me that I couldn't ignore the social anxiety and then using alcohol to kind of manage everything. And that all came to a, a crushing halt in uh, March, 2010. And, um, 
um, thankfully got sober and managed to kind of get my shit together slowly over that. And thankfully, you know, unfortunately though, through, you know, the decisions I'd made while I was drinking and using um, those, the after effects of those decisions, those decisions play out for weeks, months, years. And um, so it, what turned out to be a surprise to nobody, even though I wasn't drinking anymore, pretty soon I was divorced and unemployed and <laughs> paying rent out of my savings. Uh, but at least I wasn't drinking. So <laughs> that was nice. Or from Los Angeles or from yeah, a different yeah, country. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So when it, when it came to the head you described before, had you gone that whole way since 1999 without medication or was there a time where medication did uh, come into your life? I was on meds in 2007. Yep. I started taking meds in 2007. And just garden variety, SSRIs, serotonin, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, if you're wondering what that acronym stands for. And um, yeah, they'd been very helpful, but I was drinking enough to make them useless. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So how... For you and, you know, using alcohol to, to mask the pain mm-hmm. um, and, and eating all of these things to, to mask what you were going through, was there a point where you really checked in with your, yourself and said, hey, you know, I, I need to get help um, and I need to, to get sober, take the steps? Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. of course. Yeah, yeah, but I never did it, that, you know. They in I'm part of a fellowship of sober people that help other people stay sober, get sober. Mm-hmm. Um, and they talk about um, skidding along the bottom. A lot of people may have heard about uh, hitting rock bottom, but I, I I dragged along the bottom for a while. I tried to stop a bunch of times. This is often happens. You try to stop a bunch of times and I just couldn't do it. And knew it knew I had to stop, knew I had to not do what I was doing. Couldn't do it. Didn't have the will to do it couldn't didn't know how to do it didn't know how to not do what i'd always done but then one day it was like one particular night was really quite horrible and i'm like it would no more or less horrible than any other night before it was just like one time that i'm like okay that's it i really can't ever fucking do that again even though i'd said that to myself a thousand times i'm like i really meant it this time i've got to not do it again and um serendipitously i'd met someone who um i'd only ever really experienced thought about sober people as kind of boring sad folks who sit on folding chairs under churches with coffee and plastic cup this guy he looked like a real life version of tom of finland um don't google that if you're on public transport (laughs) Uh, basically he's a stylized cartoon character of like the the ultimate you know gay leather man you know, massive muscle, huge cock, you know, huge <laughs> forearms, big moustache, you know, like a fantasy picture of this this kind of guy. And this man looked like that and he had forearm tattoos and I didn't know how big his penis was, but uh, <laughs> so I only saw him, I saw him clothes. But uh, he was gay and he was amazing and he was lovely and he was so kind and such the life of the party and sober. I'm like, shit, I didn't know I could look like that. I didn't know that that's what sobriety could be like and I called him up and said man I, I know you go to meetings can you take me to one he said yeah I'll take you to one and that was it the first meetings I went to were all gay meetings because they're the ones that he went to but I'd sit in those meetings and I was probably one of the if not the only straight man in the room and 
didn't matter because they were all telling the same story. Like, oh, right, this shit happened to me too. Oh, you grew up in Oklahoma and so I was in West Hollywood, which is the gay suburb ever, brilliantly. And um, okay, that's interesting that we both have the same experience, even though I was a white straight kid from Brisbane and you're a white gay kid 10 years younger than me from Oklahoma, yet you're telling the way you describe what it is to be out and about, the way you describe what it is to meet new people, that's how it feels for me. Okay, all right, something's going on here. I'm not so special after all. Okay. And yeah, and so I just, um, it took a while. I had to go through some more shit before my ego finally realised that I had to stop thinking that my ideas were the best ideas and I had to go through a whole bunch more shit before I finally knew to, okay, just stop thinking that I know what to do, shut the fuck up and let someone else tell you what to do and just do what they say. And that's when things started getting better. Yeah, you talk about the decision, the decision making that gets you into place, uh, you know, the, the rock bottom, mm-hmm. the worst place in your life. That same decision making, it's unlikely that that's going to, mm. to help you get out of there. Yeah, that, like the very best ideas that I had, the best thinking that I could possibly put together got me divorced and unemployed and I lost a house. Like, this was the smartest I could be, all right? Probably not wise to think that I can also smart my way out of this might need someone else to tell me how to do this and that's what happened also goes to show the power of storytelling Mm. and our sharing our stories regardless of your background regardless of the age difference sexuality where you're from it doesn't matter if you can if you can feel the same as the guy that's you know in the room that's 10 years older from Oklahoma, gay black guy, and you're the white guy from Brisbane, but you're feeling the exact same thing. Mm. The power of storytelling is huge. Yeah. Um, and I want to get to that in a bit, uh, in a bit with your book. Um, but when was the point when you decided to move back to Australia um, and, and the new job, the one oh. you're currently doing? How did that all play out for you from Los Angeles? All right. So once again, I started swimming out to the boat. Um, I went on a little, a fun little weekend in, in Texas, actually. I've got the bag here from the, it's called Meeting of the Big Minds. And that's the bag they gave me. It was a tiny little conference, like eight people there on this ranch in Texas. And, you know, I shot six shooters at beer cans on a tree stump and stuff like that. Texas cool. things. Yeah, it was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I met a TV producer couple, like power couple. He was a writer, she was a producer. Um, or she, they were both writers and producers. They were extraordinary people. I live in Paris now. And I said, oh, I don't know, you know, what I'm going to do next. I think I said, you've got to, you know, make the next show you're going to do. I was like, but I'm not a TV producer. I said, you are if you want to be. I was like, what do you mean? And I said, Osha, you're now a TV producer. Say it. I'm a TV producer. Good. Now go and make a show. Okay. You know, like the same, like I wasn't a podcaster. And then one day I decided, what's the difference between me and anyone that started a podcast? They just fucking started. Okay. So I just started. And then I was a podcaster. <laughs> so in the same way, I was like, okay, so I'm going to make the next show I host. What's the next show I host going to be? I want it to be in Australia. I want it to be for about 10 weeks so I can come and go back to America and pitch more shows here. Should probably be about something I know a lot of at the moment, which is internet dating, which sucks. Um, so I'll make a TV show about internet dating or dating and I'll go down to Australia, shoot it for 10 weeks. Went down to Australia for my cousin's wedding anyway. I was going down there and um, I pitched it to Channel 10. They bought it in the room. 
and it didn't go ahead. But about six weeks later, a certain other dating show that they had on their slate came along and they went, you know, you wanted to come down here and shoot a TV show for 10 weeks about dating? I said, yeah. So, we just got The Bachelor. Do you want to host it? Yeah, I do. <laughs> and, and, and that was that. So I did the first season and then the second season. And then um, in the middle of the, middle of the second season, uh, I met Audrey, who's, who's my wife now. And she was my makeup artist, my fill-in makeup artist at the time. And she's just the most extraordinary, kind, beautiful human. I was very sick when I met her. Mm -hmm. um, but she was able to see me and the, the sick brain as two different things, which I was very lucky. I was very open with her, very honest about her. You know, the thoughts of self-harm are a part of my day and, you know, these fucking visualizations are a big part of my day. Sometimes it's very hard for me to see what's going on in front of me. Like it kind of glitches in and out and I see weird shit. And, um, she was able to see that and me as two separate things and she had this has a beautiful daughter so 10 years old at the time and um, I got to know them and then I came back down and I got asked to host the Arias and then I got I came back down again for about three weeks around that did some breakfast radio so I was with them for about three or four weeks and then she came over to the States and um, they came over the two of them came over and went to Disneyland and <laughs> There's nothing quite like going to Disneyland with a 10-year-old, man. <laughs> That's the fucking best. And we're walking around, you know, somewhere between dancing around the living room with G and walking around Disneyland with these two, watching Audrey just be the most extraordinary mother to this beautiful kid. Like, fuck me, what am I doing? Nothing. No TV show, nothing in America is as good as this. I was done. I was done. So I came back for season three of Batch. Um basically moved in with Audrey and G. And then um, moved back to America. I looked at my calendar the other day. I'd, I'd moved back, packed up my apartment in Venice and left within 56 hours. I'm like, that's it, I'm done. I'm out. Put it all in a storage container, put it on a ship. And that was it. Like, it was what I wanted out of life had changed. And I, I think it's really important that people give themselves space for that. Uh, years later... Uh, I think two years later, I started doing breakfast radio again up in Brisbane. I thought I wanted to do it, and I wasn't long into the job. Maybe eight weeks in, I'm like, I thought I wanted this. I don't. Fuck, now I'm here. So <laughs> I tried really hard to make it work, but um, I couldn't, couldn't, I couldn't. I wasn't as good as it, at it as I wanted to be. And um, the people that I worked with were so fucking good, so much better than me. I was like, oh man, and um, they ended up, I ended up leaving that job, and pretty much as soon as I left, they went number one, rightly so, because they're an amazing team, they're very, very good. But it was interesting looking at that, going, I thought I wanted it, but I, yeah, man, what I wanted, it changed, and that's okay. I think it's important that we give ourselves that latitude, and you know, what you thought you wanted when you're in your twenties isn't what you want in your thirties, and like, you know, what you want one year isn't what you want the next year. And you've got to allow yourself the space to go, that's okay to not want to do that anymore. I really, you know, you might have really fucking been into HSVs when you were 21 and now you're 28 and you're buying yourself a Toyota RAV4 with baby seats in the back. <laughs> and that's fine because yeah. what you wanted out of life changed and that's fine. Other people can drive those cars now and have a great time. You're like, cool, man. I've got kids now and that's the best ever. 
and that's fine. We've got to give ourselves space, I think. We, we do tend to kind of put ourselves in boxes and, mm. and want to stay in that box. And it is okay to jump out of the box yeah. and, and go with something new. Um, you don't have to be that same person from 18 to... Who'd want to be? Yeah. I wouldn't want to be who I was when I was 18 now. No, exactly. Could, oh, I couldn't. You couldn't pay me enough to be that. And there is a part of us that, or some, you know, we, we hold on to things of the past and we, we don't allow ourselves to, to go with that change and, and accept... Uh, a lot of the time, yeah. yeah. Yeah, but there is the only constant thing in this universe is change. Yep, absolutely. The only constant thing in this yeah. universe is change. Like right now, people say... Uh, you know, it's exactly, I want it to be like it used to be. Like, it's never, ever going to be like it used to be. We are on a spinning ball of dirt and water, orbiting around a ball of fire in an infinite blank space of nothingness. <laughs> in the yeah. time that it's taken me to pause in that sentence, we have traveled probably, I don't know, a couple of thousand kilometers in the last few seconds, all of us. It doesn't feel like it because gravity holds us to this planet in a singular spot. But in space, we have traveled like nothing. We're light years away from where we were, literally like squillions of kilometers from when we got born to now in the actual three dimensions of space. We are so far from where we were when we were born from yesterday, you know. Nothing is ever the same from one day to the next. Just sitting on that for a second and be like, oh, yeah, I guess, you know, this thing that I'm worried about. <laughs> the only constant in life is change. And it's easier to want to hold on to stability because then we don't have to constantly grapple with uncertainty because uncertainty is scary. But the sooner that we become into acceptance that uncertainty is what life is and growth and change is what life is and decay and regeneration and you know, obliteration to dust and extinction and rebirth is, that's what life is, then the easier we're going to have it. <laughs> no, definitely. Definitely. It's, it's fucking hard. It, it, like, and I struggle. Like I told you the size of this conversation, I yeah. struggle really hardly with that. Hardly? Hard. I really struggle very difficultly with that. And going back to, back to Audrey, yeah. just what, what has she taught you? What has uh. she been able to teach you? She sounds like such... An amazing person, but also an integral part of you becoming so much better and mm. wanting to share your story. Yeah. Um, Audrey is extraordinarily kind, very, very smart, very funny. Um, but overall, it's her kindness and belief that things won't always be this way that have reminded me to just, you know, she gives me like I want to I want to get up and, and do tomorrow because of her um, yeah she's an incredible human being and that she had the she really had to fight sometimes she had to really fight because I'm convinced that these certain things are happening and they're not she had to push hard to get to me and I'm really grateful that she did. I'm really grateful that she did. And because she she believed that I was I was worth happiness, I guess. Uh, you'd have to ask her. Definitely. She's Definitely. a no. She's a she's an extraordinary extraordinary woman. And I'm very lucky to um, get to share my life with her and be witness to the way that she 
um, leads pretty much leads both me and Georgia through through life. It's pretty great. It's beautiful. It really. I'm I'm stoked that you found her. I'm me stoked too. that you found each other. <laughs> yeah. Because I've got, I've got family members that have learned a lot from your story. All right. Uh, my aunties, you know, definitely struggled with uh, with mental health, and from your story, she's learned a lot. And being able to to have a story that she can compare to and say, All right. "I'm not the only one," you know, and I can, yeah, um, see that someone else is going through that. Well, that was the that was a big part of me getting sober. Was I knew I couldn't drink anymore but I didn't know what life could be like without alcohol. It's like if you blindfolded me and took me into your home, into your living room, you're like, here we are in my living room. Now tell me about the cars on the street. I'm like, I, I can't picture it. can't picture it because I don't know what they look like. You brought me in here with my eyes shut. I can't tell you what the street looks like. Similarly, I just had no idea what life could look like without booze. I knew I couldn't drink anymore, but I couldn't picture what it could be like or how it worked. Hearing another person share their story of like, okay, their story sounds the same as mine at the start and then they did all this stuff and now they're married again and they've got a kid coming and they've got a house again and they've got a job. Like something happened in between there. What was that? Show me what that is. <laughs> Tell me to do it. Tell me how to do it. I'll do it. Similarly, when I got quite sick um, and I was dealing with the episodes of paranoid delusions and stuff like that and the PTSD and the OCD and all that, hearing other people's stories of how they now live their lives and manage their lives. It was because at the time I couldn't imagine what life could be like. It's like, it's always going to be this way. It's always going to feel this shit. I'm going to think about self-harm every fucking day, forever. Oh. And then when I heard other people talking, like, oh, there's a way to get better. Oh, actually, show me what that is, please, because I don't like this very much. And I just, just one day, I think it was, it was pretty much around Audrey and Georgia. I'm like, there's got to be more than waking up every day feeling like this. I, I deserve feeling better. And I was just absolutely committed to doing whatever it took to feel better and to get better and to have a better experience of life and a more um, engaged experience of life. And, you know, because fuck, I was, if I was going to do it, I might as well like enjoy it or at least not feel awful every second of the day. And to believe that it was worth putting the effort in. Because it's hard. It's hard work. Like I told you at the start. It's yep. hard fucking work, man. It sucks. But you then get to have these these moments through your day that are nice. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Talking about doing the work, the hard work, and, and that is part of, of being better. Was the book Was the book part of this work? reliving your story and getting it into words was it at all no the book was a, a way of doing what those people did for me yep at, at scale people like just the other night someone oh you're so brave to share your story it's like it's got nothing to do with me being brave it's me wanting to give what was given to me to others that's it it's me wanting to give the gift of hey i'm down here where things are better it can be better you're just missing the part of the story where you have to do these things. So just do these things. You'll be here soon. Because <laughs> that's what was given to me. Yeah. And I, that, was, that was it. That was why, that's why I put it together. Um, it, you don't really make money off selling a book in Australia. It's not really a big enough market. Yep. <laughs> and how's the, how's the response been? Great. It's been great. Yep. I'm just super grateful. Like, I couldn't be more grateful that you know people have 
responded and the way they've responded is, is you know, I, I was guided very, very well by um, my excellent publisher, Catherine Milne, and, and my editors along the way that helped me sharpen it and distill it and, and craft it into what it became. And, you know, when, like I did this live show in Wollongong the other night and um, a 17-year-old girl came to the front of the line to sign things at the end and she says, oh, you told my story. She's a 17-year-old girl from Wollongong. I'm a 45-year-old stepdad from Sydney. But she says, you told my story. So, shit. <laughs> That's pretty powerful, man. No, I love it. And and same thing why I started the podcast was I just wanted to share people's stories because mm. I'd, I'd started to see, you know, just how deeply people can resonate mm. with someone else's story and how it might help them. Um, so today we haven't spoken anything about your plant-based life. No. Um, but I think the... I went and ate at Shift Eatery right beforehand, so I can <laughs> tell you all about my lunch. So Osher is a... He's the first. He's the first plant-based male to be on the front cover of Men's Health magazine yeah. here in Australia. Yeah. So that was pretty recent. Pretty awesome. Yeah. Um, do you think it helped the plant-based eating with <sighs> what helped me? Yeah. Any any because I know that plant-based eating is meant to be you know very strongly linked with better gut health. We now know that gut health is strongly linked with mental health. Yeah. Too. Um. Look, I don't know. I've been eating plant-based since 2002, so... Yeah, I don't, I never, hard to say. I, I never really lifted anything more than... I never really lifted weights before that. I ran. That was about it. I never yep. really lifted any weights. I can't run anymore, so now I lift weights and ride bikes. Yep. Um, look, I don't. so I don't know if it, if it helped. Um, I got diagnosed celiac along the way, so I've been... I've known I'm celiac for about a year now. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that, that beforehand, so uh, that's... You know, changed my life again. So now I'm a sober vegan celiac. I'm the most boring man in the world. <laughs> um, but look, that you know, this is the way I've eaten for. Gosh, what's two thousand seven? Like pretty much m- most of my adult life. Mm-hmm. So I don't really know any other thing. I don't know any other way to eat. So, I mean, it, it's for anyone that says you can't put on muscle eating just plants, then they don't know what science is because science is pretty easy. It's just A plus B equals C and it's pretty simple. It's like if you if you stress the body and you put enough calories in and enough calories of the right kind of nutrients, be they carbohydrate, fat and protein in the right particular ratios, you'll put on muscle and you'll lose fat. It's really simple. There's not really <laughs> much more to it than that. But you've got to push your body into stress for the body to then... Uh, have that recomposition of of, of adapting to the stress that you're putting your body under Um, which is what you know and similarly that's kind of what I do with my head you know I have to be with this uncomfortable feeling because as the more I'm with it the more I'm able to be with it and that you know it's heavy to lift a a 100 kilo deadlift is heavy it's hard and it hurts but then the next time you do it and a week after you've recovered it's easier Mm. that's just how our bodies are it's incredible you know the headspace stuff is slower you know you know it's not like a week that it it becomes easier it's a lot slower and the increments are much smaller but it does get easier like not drinking was really 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 hard for the first 10 weeks 12 weeks was fucking hard but now it's just so much easier now 
it just gets easier. It gets easier and easier and easier. So hopefully the same thing will happen with my head. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. You know, I, I'm, I've pulled Instagram off my phone. I've pulled Facebook off my phone. Pulled Twitter off my phone. I don't want to. I'm trying hard not to be controlled. I have my moods controlled by algorithms. Mm-hmm. I don't have a tinfoil hat on. You know, I'm fucking well aware that these companies employ psychologists who design things to keep my attention, to keep me using their platforms for as long as possible. And you've got an excellent podcast on that. Yes, yeah. well, there's many. Uh, mine's one of many. Um, and I, I, I don't want to be around that. And I do find, you know, as much as, and, and you know, I, I did a, a really interesting podcast with a woman called Joe Thornley about cult thinking mm-hmm. um, and that you get over a certain point of belief and then anything against that belief pushes you even further, even if that argument against is, is real and rational and valid. And I see online, particularly on Instagram, where I was spending a lot of time, there's a, a, a plant, there's an element of plant-based eating that is so, it, you know, if you could swap the variables out of plants, it may as well be any kind of other extreme behavior. That is just, if you're not, it's a race to purity. And if you're not all the way this pure, then you are as bad as anyone else. Like, and what did someone hit me with the other day? Do you not care that animals died to make vaccines? You deserve to explain that to every other vegan. Fuck you. <laughs> I want to be alive. Okay. I'll fucking vaccines work. It's science. It, there's no argument. All right. And if you're going <gasps> like, that's what they told me you'd say. Listen to my show about cults. Listen to my show about deprogramming. Like, <laughs> seriously, it's fucking the same shit. And it's it's so fucking dangerous. It's, it's getting super dangerous because now we're talking about public health, right? But, you know, and, and I, well, someone asked me the other day, like, and I, now, now I don't want to call myself vegan because people think vegan kick in the fucking front doors of cattle farmers in North Queensland. Like, fuck, man, you're making it hard. I just want to eat my veggies and go to sleep, all right? If people want to put meat in their mouths, that's up to them. Like, if people want to believe in another religion, that's up to them. You know, do they want to believe in a really extreme religion, does really violent things? You know, I don't don't like that, but that's up to them. Are we, as a society, going to do something about it when they do something violent? Probably. Like, similarly, do you want to believe? Like, come on, man. Like, what other people want to do with their lives is completely up to them. And there's more to be gained in seeing the commonality between, like, my wife is Fijian. My, that's the technical opposite of a vegan. They eat any, if it casts a shadow, they will eat it, you know, <laughs> and every part of it, right? And it's from Mexico, same thing. <laughs> Seriously, yeah. man. Yeah. Like, and fuck, fine, you know, and that's great. But, and I've watched my wife, I've watched my wife butcher a pig from snout to hoof, all right, um, at a big fest, at a big feast with the family, um, which is a very Fijian traditional thing to do. Who am I to tell them that's not a good thing to do? That's like, of course, but I guess the one argument that I have is like, they, it's a full animal. Like there, there it is and all the kids see it and the kids can see it being sliced up and the kids see it go onto a plate and everybody, you know, certain members of the family gets, the Islander culture, certain members of the family get certain parts of the animal depending on where you are in the hierarchy. It's, it's interesting. Um, and, no, I, you know, I could talk to them about, you know, there's health benefits 
for maybe eating less of that and there's environmental benefits for maybe eating less of that and that's a conversation we can have that doesn't make them a bad person man like that's just who they are they're a lovely human being who loves their family just like anybody else and i'm not going to not like them or not allow them in my life because they do that and i reckon i like a lot of a lot of people who there's an appeal to purity that um is a a big aspect of some forms of radicalization anti-vax is like that um some veganism is like that. Mm-hmm. There's an appeal to, I live a far more pure life than you. Seriously? Come on, man. Like, oh, I couldn't, if you, I couldn't uh, un- unless you grow your own vegetables in your garden and use only rainwater, every, pr- pretty much every vegetable you eat is a part of the Haber-Bosch process. There is ammonia that has been through a machine. There is nitrogen that has been sucked out of the air that has gone through a machine that has gone into the vegetable that is now in your body. Like, just understand what science has to do. Like, come on, man. Like, let's just, like, there's no there's no point in, in, in trying to kick other people out of our sandpit because they're not clean enough. Like, that's just going to leave fewer and fewer people in the sandpit. All right, how can we put our arms around? How can instead of you know drawing a circle around the people that fit within our strict guidelines, how can we draw a circle around everyone and help them come in? Or how can we? What can we learn from each other? That's you know. So I'm I'm really reluctant to do any kind of animal activism stuff or anything like that because I just I just don't understand the. So and and people probably get quite upset at me, and that's fine. Be upset at me. That's okay. It's my choice as much as this is yours. You know, and we're about to have a baby. Uh, baby's not going to be vegan until the baby decides to be. It's not my, it's not my choice. It's their choice. You know, if you want to bring up your kids vegan, you go right ahead. Make sure you're doing it right so they don't get sick. Because if that baby gets sick, then all of us look bad. <laughs> I, we're, we're running out of time. Yeah, I've got to go. I yeah. think you, you nail it there. You, you're bringing up a bunch of really important points yes it's very important for the environment it's Mm. great for animals it's better for our health yeah but you know what excluding people from that sandpit and not letting them come and you know dig with us we're not going to grow are we no no and they're never going to want to they're never going to want to be that because we've made them feel bad for their choice no not at all they can feel great for their choice invite them over cook them something that they've never tasted before and makes the their body glow I'll never forget the first time I had the most amazing vegan meal. My body glowed. I'm like, I want more of that. Like, be selfish. Show them how good they can feel. All right? Don't show them the videos. <laughs> They've all seen the videos. <laughs> you know? <laughs> we don't have enough time. We don't have enough time to kick people out if they're not a part of our gang. We've got to bring everyone along with us. We're running out of time fast. So we've got to do it. Well, I bloody love that. That's a <laughs> really good place to to wind it up. Kill Osha, me, congratulations on your uh, your baby. Ah, uh, uh, well, coming. I didn't, soon. I didn't do much. <laughs> my no, wife's doing all the growing. It's um, yeah. I can't wait to to follow, continue following your story, hearing more. <laughs> Osha has uh, a podcast, guys, that you can you can find where people listen to podcasts. It's called the Osha Ginsberg Podcast. Uh, he's got a great book out now thank you mate you can find it in a bunch of good bookstores and buy books yeah and also listener books uh it's on audible yeah. yeah and the book is called back after the break 
Guys, reach out to Osher. Say hey. <laughs> Let him know that um, you know you you tuned in to the podcast today, Thanks, mate. Man. I, mate, I thank you so much for for sharing your story. Um, it's helping people worldwide. Um, and thank you for your time today on the podcast. I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me. Cheers, mate. You got it, man. Hey, guys. Thank you again for listening in today. I really appreciate each and every one of you. It's awesome uh, to be able to bring you this show uh, every week. So I hope you continue to enjoy uh, the conversations and guests that I'm bringing you on a weekly basis. Today's show, honestly, was probably the most raw one I've recorded. I'm grateful to Osher for being willing to record and being so open, not only today, but in his own podcast and in the book uh, he recently released. Uh, That one is called Back After the Break and is available in bookstores and also online on uh, either Kindle or Audible. He's making the conversation about mental health something that we don't have to be ashamed of, something that we can be brave enough to speak up about and also showing the importance of seeking help. I'm really looking forward to continuing to follow his story and his journey. There's some exciting times on the horizon with a new addition to the family on the way, not to mention his awesome dogs, Lilo and Frankie. Uh, If you want to follow along, find Osher on Instagram. If you did enjoy today's show or any other previous episodes, I would love to hear your feedback. So before leaving the app today, if you can please uh, leave a short review and rating. I would really appreciate that. I want to make this experience better and better for you and to continue bringing inspiring guests from around the world. Next week, we'll be hearing from chef and wellness coach Adam Guthrie. I'm really excited for this one, guys. He's an awesome, awesome human. He's got an amazing story. So please subscribe, stay tuned. uh, And until then, Keep it plant-based and I will see you all soon.